that that's a that's a very vulnerable position to be in and they expect sort of that there'll be you know there'll be artillery coming from the beach over the hills there um, at them and they know they're fairly defenseless there except for the guns of the ships but that doesn't happen this is preble hall Welcome to Preble Hall, a podcast about naval history from the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis. Welcome back to another episode. Our guests today are Tim Heck, United States Marine Corps Major Reserves, and Jay Overton, Public Affairs Officer for the United States Navy. And they're going to be talking about their new book that uh, that Tim and B.A. Fre- sorry, I shouldn't say B.A. Friedman. I see B.A. Friedman all the time. It's Brett Friedman, who's also another Marine Corps officer. Their book is On Contested Shores, The Evolving Role of Amphibious Operations in the History of Warfare, and Jay is one of the contributors. Tim Heck is a recent graduate from King's College London in the Department of War Studies, an artillery officer by training. He is a graduate of several military command and staff schools. He's currently designing a course on the evolution of the United States Army from Vietnam to Desert Storm for Marine Corps University. He is working on several projects on the Red Army during and after the Great Patriotic War, and can be found on Twitter at TGHEC1. Jay Overton is a civilian employee of the United States Navy, as I mentioned. Previously, he taught for the Naval War College Fleet Seminar Program and the Marine Corps Command and Staff College, and served in the U.S. Coast Guard. He's a graduate of the Joint Forces Staff College, Naval War College, and Northern Arizona University, and previously was a guest here on Preble Hall when he spoke about the Battle of Port Gamble. Gentlemen, welcome to Preble Hall. Thanks for having us. And Jay, it's uh, good to talk with you again because you and I spend a little time together down in the beautiful Caribbean for about 10 months uh, at Gitmo. And I, as I always tell people, I, I was not in Gitmo. I was at Gitmo. I was not formally uh, charged with, it, with anything at the time, at least. And, uh, you know, good, good times <laughs> were had by all. Uh, and That's Tim, I'm word. sorry you didn't get a chance to, to serve down there. It's, uh, it's, I'm sure at some point in history it was a lovely place. Uh, <laughs> remember the main <laughs> remember the main yeah although I'll, I'll i'll tell you there jay was wonderful as not only as a public affairs officer but as a host and as a friend down there because he really understood and appreciated the history of the naval base and the region and really got me involved in in really looking at the hit at the history of Operation Sea Signal because he had so many materials in his office about that major operation that we ended up doing another podcast about that with the uh, Marine who was the commanding officer for for that mission in the 1990s. But there was so much history at the naval base that people are shocked by, you know, the statues, the sculptures that were left by the Cubans and the Haitians during Operation Sea Signal. Uh, but even going back to geez, Columbus's second voyage, he pulled in there. And, of course, during the Spanish-American War, uh, Marines had told me about this place in, in terms of the Spanish-American War. And we sent some midshipmen down there. We sent five midshipmen to do a survey of the Battle of Cusco Well. And they did some just absolutely phenomenal work. Couldn't have been more proud of those those uh, midshipmen to understand that. And when you're when you're looking around, I mean, history really was – was there there was one hill in particular and i thought that's that's an odd name for a hill and it turned out to be the uh, it was crane hill and i was like why is it named crane hill it was the red badge of courage stephen crane and he had written war letters uh, or war postings 
while he was in Guantanamo Bay and going along with the the Marine Corps at the time. So, Jay, th- again, that's a, a bit of a long introduction, but I don't think we tend to appreciate some of the places that we serve. And you were always a very gracious host, and, and you and your wife were absolutely wonderful. And, and of course, your dog uh, is super cool. So, thanks. <laughs> well, th- thanks, Clay. You were, I got to say, you, uh, getting to know you is one of the highlights of my time down there. I mean, I I say I dabble in naval history, but I when I found out you were there for a while, uh, I, I got to know you. First off, I reached out just to just to pick your brain some and just, you know, I've read a lot of your writings, but then it was just added bonus to get to be a good friend. So, well, I, I would have thought it was like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's lawyer or something that, that uh, ranked higher, you know, <laughs> but who uh, was also a great guy, really. Very, also a great very, guy. Very, yeah, he was a great guy, you know, exactly. uh, but what are you going to do? <laughs> All right, guys, um, I am really looking forward to this topic. It's not something that we've covered, I don't think, on Preble Hall, except for once. We talked about Tarawa a couple of months ago with a professor from another Marine from the History Department here at the Naval Academy. But, Tim, I want to start with you. Why did you and Brett decide to go with this particular topic? What what was it that you wanted to bring out that you thought might have been lacking in literature about amphibious operations? Well, I think Brett and I are probably two of the most unlikely people to be doing a book on amphibious operations for the Marine Corps, because like most of the the folks in our generation, Brett and I were commissioned in 05. He joined as an enlisted Marine probably around 2000. I signed the contract in 2002. Um, We've never seen a ship. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, so, so here we are, the sea service we're this amphibious force and, and it's in our heritage and it's in our, training and our education and all of that. And yet our formative years as, as company grade officers were in Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, we're, we're colloquially dirt Marines. And so mm-hmm. as you know, we, we, the United States pulls out of the middle East, which I think it's supposedly been doing for 10 years now. Um, and we start shifting to the Pacific, something else we've been doing for a decade. It's a lot of water out there. Uh, and Brett and I, identified a gap in the scholarship. It came out of uh, what was supposed to be a chapter in the book, a chapter I'm still writing. Um, but for those, hopefully, hint, hint, Naval Academy, I get selected to attend McMullen 2021. Uh, and I'll be presenting that chapter finally there. But I, I was looking for information on Soviet amphibious operations in the Second World War and couldn't find what I wanted. And the closest thing I could find was Merrill Bartlett's Assault from the Sea, released by Naval Institute Press in the early 90s, uh, which is fantastic and a seminal document. And I reached out to Brett and I said, hey, man, do you want to do a book on amphibious operations? And I got back profanity. Yes. (laughs) And that was that was the genesis of it. And the again, the reason we picked it is we're we as a service are going back to sea. Uh, we're, We're looking at great power competition and gray zone and all of these things that, you know, we sound like buzzwords, but they have practical implications and projection of force ashore, the threat of sea power and the subsequent application of land power from that sea power is something the Marine Corps is looking at. And so we, we decided we'd do a book on it. Now I want to go back to what you said about being an, you know, a ground pounder essentially 
and doing amphibious operations, do you think you had an advantage in studying this particular topic because you had a little more objectivity? You could start fresh. And I'm going to open that up to both you and Jay, uh, because Jay, you've, you've been in the Coast Guard, but you've written on military battles. You know, it's, it's the same thing with me. There's, there's certain things I've written about that I haven't experienced. Is there an advantage to having a carte blanche when you're, when you're approaching a topic? I, I think there is an advantage. I don't come in necessarily with some of the, the preconceived biases. Um, I have to do the foundational readings, the foundational studies myself to be credible. And I, there's, there's kind of no other way to say that. You know? So in the, every chapter that came in required research. So Brett and I would divide up the proposals. We'd divide up the chapters as they came in. And without fail, you know, so say it's a it's a 15 page chapter, and as an editor, I could turn out 15 pages of, of good writing, you know, in about three to four hours. But with this book, we were doubling that time just because you can sit and not go down the rabbit hole, but get the background. And to do so, yes, look, I'm a Marine, and it's on my name tapes, and it's in my identity, and and so I'm. You know, there, there's an element of raw, raw marine, but when Brett and I put this together, and I think this is where authors like Jay are so valuable, is we didn't want this to be by Marines, for Marines, and about Marines. You know, the, the glories, and, and this is no knock on Chris Hemmler in his podcast, because he's, he's doing a really good stuff on the tentative landing manual and, um, and, and Tarawa, but we, we, as a culture, have done Tarawa and Iwo Jima and to a lesser extent, Okinawa extensively, you know, it's the touchstone. It's one of the, the things you learn as a, as an, in, you know, a basic entry Marine. And so to be able to look at a chapter like Jay's on Veracruz or, you know, Eric Seibel's chapter on Estonian amphibious operations in the Eastern Baltic in the 19-teens, 1920s, like we don't have a background in that. And so it have caused us and it allowed, you know, caused, but, definitely allowed us to go and do significant additional research to understand where things were coming from. And I think that gave us a level of objectivity that we wouldn't necessarily have had if we had spent, you know, if we were writing about our experiences in Iraq or Afghanistan. Thanks, Jay. Sure. I'll say what Tim and I were classmates and friends from the Joint Forces Staff College and kept in touch over the few years. And when he, he just, uh, I think even before the call for proposals went out, he emailed me and said, hey, uh, me and a friend are thinking of editing a book on amphibious operations. And I said, just offhandedly, that's cool. Hey, you guys should make sure you do something on Vera Cruz during the Mexican War, because people tend to focus on D-Day a lot. And of course, uh, knowing you know the Marine battles in the Pacific War, and I assumed that would be where things, they were going to hit a lot. And I just, I had done a little research, a little writing on Veracruz. And I said, just try and get something in on that. And, but I was thinking uh, if I get to write something at the time, I was at Guantanamo Bay and I thought, well, there was a, that's an also a, uh, underappreciated um, amphibious operation there and a very seminal one too um, by the Marines. But I just said, try to do something on Veracruz. And Tim said, cool, send me something. So um, <laughs> I went from there, sent him stuff <laughs> there. And then, and then I also thought, well, that, that may be one of the older, um, one of the older ones in the book, one of the older case studies there, but I was way off. I was in 
1847, and they go back about 300 years before that. So they went well, well outside of the just the Pacific War or D-Day. Um, and it was also good. I've, again, studied the Mexican War. I've been to Mexico, but it was it was probably better that I do something on that um, than do something right there at Guantanamo, even though I was obviously not there in 1898 when the Marines landed, but still it was good to go um, be a little more objective, I think, um, doing what I wasn't as familiar with. And luckily there was some inclusion of Guantanamo by in the essay by Walker Mills, which is great at the end. So, I think you guys hit on something really important, and this is important for students because, you know, Gosh, t teaching for so many years in the history department, at the beginning of the semester, you've got these plebes who just want to write a research paper on Midway or Pearl Harbor because this is what they've heard about. And I never allow them to hit the big topics during World War II. It's always got to be a smaller, manageable topic that they can handle. And the smaller the topic, the better. But I think that's one of the real strengths of, of this book. And I should point out that this book is available from Marine Corps University Press. It was published in 2020 and, and available uh, widely available online, and you can you can get one from MCU Press. But you know, looking at the breadth of this, this is not just about U.S. amphibious operations. This this covers uh, global operations. And I want to ask you, Tim, the why did you start with? And I want to make sure I get the pronunciation Porto Ecoleto in 1555. We started with that one because you know, kind of in some ways. All edited volumes are the um, are the result of what gets submitted and what gets proposed, and it was the earliest proposal we had that we accepted. And so, right, chronologically, it starts off the chapter or it starts off the book. But Brett and I were debating how we wanted to present this. Um, some of it was, you know, the obvious choice. It's a history type book. It's in the subtitle. Um, chronological, right? History marches forward. The other thought we had was doing something a little more thematic, and we, we eventually decided that trying to pull themes out of some of these chapters that just have so much in them, you know, and I'm thinking, you know, for example, you've got Jeff Schultz writing about the Germans and the Dodecanese in, in, in World War II, right? A very minor conflict or a very minor part of a very large war that did have strategic implications um, with regards to, to keeping Turkey where it was. Uh, you know, there was more than just that strategic implication in there. You know, he's talking about how do you deal with captured ships and how do you defend against this? And so we realized that the chapters were so rich that you, we couldn't do it in a thematic, conceptual way. So we kind of defaulted to chronological. And, and I think it works. Um, but, you know, I, I, I leave that for the readers to, to tell us. So tell us a little bit about the amphibious operations that are going on during the 16th century. There's two, I think, that were identified. There's this Porto Ecoleto and the siege of, of Leiden. Leiden? I think it's Leiden. I think it's, yeah, I think it's Leiden. You know, Samuel Ducourt's chapter on Leiden was, again, one of those things that we didn't know existed. And I think in Dutch history, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of a bigger one. In, in American terms, you, you, I would think about something like the Battle of Oriskany during the American Revolution, right? In American history, it, it's there, it's mentioned, it's in, it's in the textbooks, people know about it. Outside of the United States, maybe with the exception of the aircraft carrier, nobody knows about it. And I think that's what, you know, a chapter like Leiden did for, for the book, right? So Samuel 
being Dutch, knows about this. This is part of his country's heritage, part of his, his history. Boom, presents it to us, and we went, wow, we know nothing about this. Um, but this is fascinating. And so you have a siege, right? And so we, we talk about siege warfare, kind of something that doesn't get talked about a lot anymore, but throw in an amphibious component to it. Now, bringing that forward to today, I have a city on the littorals, I'm blockaded, or I need to get out of a blockade from it. How am I going to do that? There's a chapter on the birth of amphibious doctrine. Where does this emerge? And how does it how does it come about? So Andrew's chapter on on Molyneux is this great historical analysis, right? So out of nowhere, and, and the term amphibious doesn't really come up and doesn't start to become part of the military lexicon until the 20th century. But you have this early this early British theoretician who's looking at operations on the continent, who's looking at operations, you know, Britain's a sea power. It's projecting forces from the sea, but you, know, you just can't, you know, this isn't water world with Kevin Costner. Like you just can't live at sea. You've got to get on land somehow. And so he comes up with these things and I'm trying to find this really great quote from him. And so Molyneux is this theoretician. He's, he's writing in the era of you know, proper great power competition in Europe. Right. So you've got France and Spain and Portugal and the British, and they're all competing. You know, the, the kind of from the French border east, it, it's a collection of principalities. It's, it's not the Europe we think of today. But worldwide, these empires are competing and, and Molyneux is looking at it going, well, how do I get power around? And he he's not only looking at how do I get power out, he's also looking at retreats. And I think that's something that we, we traditionally think of amphibious operations and we think of the assault, right? We think of that Normandy, we think of that Iwo Jima, we think of that, that Tarawa. We don't necessarily think of those withdrawals. And, you know, and Molyneux writes, the difficulty to be got over is to know how not only to invade with success, but likewise to retreat with safety. So, the sea is a great way to get someplace and it's a great way to get out of someplace. And him writing this, you know, he, he's writing of this trees and this tome starts to build a culture that the sea is, you know, that there is not that hard division between the land and the sea, which is strange to think that that was such kind of a, an ideological or a, a doctrine's the wrong word, but a mental block, especially in Europe, which had, well, I mean, significant 700 years earlier, the Vikings had been launching assaults from the sea and then retreating back out to sea. And sure. they've been raiding, they've been raiding everywhere. And so, but his mental framing of the concept starts a slow shift into what we now know today as amphibious operations, both, you know, over the beach to attack and getting out and everything else, right? The five types, not just you know, assault from the sea. Jay, your chapter on Veracruz, I think, is really important in American history because it's one of the first really major amphibious operations that we conduct first, one of the first major joint operations. So if you could tell us about uh, the decisions going into Veracruz and how they conducted it. Sure. Um, this was one of the 
it's sort of what Tim was just talking about. I would say before this, there had been uh, the, the planning, as it were, for amphibious ops had pretty much been, we're guys on a boat, we need to get over to land right now. Okay, let's do that. Um, Veracruz uh, kicks it up a little bit. It was looked at from a an operational art perspective, really, though they didn't use the term. Um, the Mexican War had been going on several months there. Um, you had a large land army as marching from uh, modern U.S. border um, into Mexico itself, but it was obvious that was just going to take too long. The lines of communication um, were too long. That wasn't gonna wasn't gonna get to war aims, um, which was essentially to take the Mexico City capital. So it was decided the best way to do this, if looking on a globe, it becomes pretty obvious, is to put your land a large army um, on the Gulf Coast of Mexico, and then it's a much shorter trek over to Mexico City proper there. Um, and the place Veracruz had been used um, was a popular place to land back from the conquistadors to various pirates and on up. It was the good way to get to um, to land and march over land to, at one point, Tenochtitlan and eventually Mexico City there. Um, so uh, Winfield Scott, who was one of the oldest, most experienced generals in the U.S. Army, um, takes over control of the whole operation and takes most of the army which had been fighting um, in the Mexican War and decides they're going to essentially put them on ships from Texas and New Orleans and bring them over and land this whole group of about 10,000 um, folks near Veracruz and then march overland from there. And just something of that significance hadn't been done before. And he's planning this out in D.C. He's coming up with you know, operational plans, that kind of thing. They go by different names, but it's very similar to this. And one of the, um, I didn't t go into it too much in the chapter, but there is a, I believe it's a, a Navy logistician comes up with the idea to do specially designed surf boats. Now they don't have like nice ramps, that sort of thing, but what they do is sort of fit onto each other like Russian dolls. So you can put more of them on a ship. Um, if you just have lifeboats, you know, there's only so many you can get, but the way they knew this was going to be, there were going to be ships full of troops who were mostly just going to get off. Their whole point, the ships were mostly for transport. So you were going to have to get lots more guys off a ship onto boats than you were used to doing. So um, they designed this and they had a, the element of, uh, it created some urgency. It was that uh, Yellow Freever, they called it El Vomito, tends to break out in that area um, around April as the weather starts getting warmer. So that was uh, pushing up their time frame to get in and um, do that. So the idea was they would land, then they would take the city of Veracruz and then march inland from there. Um, was and, this an Sorry, Jay, was this an opposed uh, landing? Well, it, it kind of should have been. There were, um, Veracruz had several thousand uh, troops there, Mexican troops there. And if you if you look at the modern amphibious planning is roughly... Was it you want uh, three attackers per one defender? Well, they we had about ten thousand folks offshore. Mexicans had a couple to three thousand, depending on how you uh, if you count militiamen there. So, th and they had a, a very well um, defended uh, thick walls to a city, um, plenty of artillery, and a large, essentially a coastal artillery fort. Um, so all of those things really put it in the Mexicans advantage. And they also just had, if they waited it out a few months or a few weeks, even um, if you had the setting in of yellow fever, which uh, Mexico, of course, disease took out a whole lot more of us troops than did uh, 
Mexican ammunition. So um, if they had just been able to hold off the Americans a little while longer, uh, could have been very, you know, the, the outcome could have been very, very different. But the decision was made to land and they didn't, this was something, of course, it's discussed in the book. You don't, you don't really want to land on the beach where all the other, the enemy is, you want to land, you know, somewhere where, where it's not opposed. So they managed to do that. They landed just a couple of miles from the actual city of Veracruz. And that would have been a really good time um, for the Mexicans to, as any point, that's the weakest, of course, point in the amphibious operation. But for whatever reason, and I've never been able to find a really good answer to why the Mexicans didn't really seize that initiative. But you read uh, firsthand accounts of a lot of the folks going ashore there. And many of these people are these are lieutenants and captains like uh, Captain Robert E. Lee. You get uh, Lieutenant George McClellan, uh, Robert Anderson, who uh, later on is, of course, uh, is the CEO of Fort Sumter when Civil War breaks out a few years later. But th these these folks are about to get rowed ashore and they they are not that confident. They believe they are very aware as they're being put into little surf boats that, you know, this and they've got uh, a considerable distance there to be to be rowed ashore. That that's a that's a very vulnerable position to be in, and they expect sort of that there'll be you know there'll be artillery coming from the beach over the hills there, um, at them, and they know they're fairly defenseless there except for the guns of the ships, but that doesn't happen. So. Now I'm not sure if you cover this, Jay, but is there any indication during the Civil War that the leaders then learned anything about amphibious operations from when they did this at Veracruz? Um, I that's a good. For all the people who were at Veracruz, I didn't ever get that the the amphibious you know lessons from that came out of it. Um, some things did. You get uh, there's a there's a point where Winfield Scott is writing a letter and he calls it his little cabinet. He gets a little group together there um, on one of the ships and says, "All right, once we land, how are we gonna? Should we storm Veracruz? Essentially, should we go about siege work? Siege work takes a little longer, but it'll probably be less costly. But you know, times of the essence. How do you think we should go about this? And in his little cabinet, uh, one of them is Captain Robert E. Lee, who's an engineer at the time. And although it would have been, they called it a butcher's. You get more glory from a butcher's bill if more of the Americans had been killed in a more valiant storming of the city. It might have looked better on fit reps at the time for those who survived, but it was um, decided, no, we're going to land, you know, not land a little bit away from the city. We're going to take our time, set up a proper siege, ask for a surrender, uh, dig in, and then we're going to um, besiege the city with artillery. And you see that where you get uh, Lee being called the king of spades at one point because he has his troops um, dig instead of, you know, when they think they should be doing the I did a little up the middle thing. Um, so I think you do get lessons from Vera Cruz, or at least they've seen how that can, that is, um, works well. And Grant comes in later, uh, wasn't in the initial landing there, but you see things like the, the sieges of cities of Vicksburg, that sort of thing, where that seemed to be a although it is very harsh on the inhabitants, of course, where that seemed to be uh, a better way to go about doing things. Once you had good artillery, um, you were able to move them into position, um, dig in your own entrenchments, that sort of thing. Um, that that was more, less costly in life than a general storming of an, especially an urban fortified position. But the amphibious lands that you don't get, I don't see lots of that. I do see a progression through the book 
where you get rather than, of course, just looking at one particular. If there occurs, it was just looked at as this is just one operation. We're going to do this for. And then later on, you get the idea of, well, maybe we could do that other places. And even if we're not at war with those places or we don't need to get there now, how might we go about that? So uh, the lessons eventually get um the lessons eventually get learned, I believe, or get studied at least, but I didn't see lots of that in the Civil War. In the 1920s, the Marine Corps was looking at, you know, kind of what's next. And so they, so Ellis is in Micronesia, and the Marine Corps is trying to figure out what it's going to do next. So we've been the State Department's policemen. We've been the security force on ships. There are Marines all over Latin America. Um, but we've also just come up from being a land army. You know, we were part of the U.S. Ex- out the uh, the American Expeditionary Force in France. You know, so the Belle Wood and and you know, Generals Cates and and they they come out of World War One. And so the Marine Corps is casting around trying to figure out what it's going to do. And one of the things it's looking at is amphibious operations. Right, we're a naval service. We're tied to ships. We have been landing parties. You know, something B.J. Armstrong uh, or Commander Armstrong of the Naval Academy talks about in his chapter. You know, we've done this thing before, these landing operations. So how do we formalize that? And casting around for recent examples, there's only really two good ones. The first is Operation Albion, which was the Germans in the Baltic, um, kind of going after Russian, Imperial Russian territory. And then the second one was Gallipoli. And so language barriers being what they were, uh, the Aussies speak a version of English, and so do we. And Gallipoli winds up being one of the key studies uh, of the 1920s and 1930s. And they bring in participants, and they're using memoirs, and they're using official histories to figure out how we do it. Because the Marine Corps thinks that amphibious operations, which many people had said, look, they're, they're not going to work. Right? Gallipoli proved they won't work. And the Marine Corps says, no, I think they will. And so, you know, what Angus talks about in his chapter is that process of how it gets involved in the staff schools, how it gets um, looked at. And really tied with that is the following chapter by Bruce Gudmundson um, when he's talking about the study of amphibious warfare. And he talks more about Albion, um, which remains a critical amphibious operation that doesn't tend to get a lot of analysis and isn't in our book directly, but maybe if there's a volume two, we'll go out for a chapter specifically on that. But the Marine Corps is casting around trying to figure out what it's going to do. And it wants to do amphibious operations and it's only really got two solid ones uh, in a, you know, early 20th century conceptualization of modern warfare. Yeah, actually, I should point out to Tim, and I apologize. I, did, I, I didn't mean to gloss over uh, B.J. Armstrong's chapter. I'm, I was just looking over my notes, and he has uh, a chapter on 1871, the Commodore Rogers expedition to Korea, and B.J. has spoken about that obviously at, at the uh, Naval Academy Museum. So I, mm-hmm. I didn't want to. Glo- I apologize. That was my oversight. I, I didn't oh, want. Oh, we that can to totally happen. gloss over him. That's fine. <laughs> no, no, you got to keep it humble, but. <laughs> You know, no, and again, talk about the incredible assets that exist at the academy, right? When he talked, when he came to us with this chapter idea, it basically started out of having walked by a display cabinet where they were dusting and cleaning flags. 
Uh, yeah, that was, that? yeah, that was right? it. Was actually a little bit more than that, and I should I'll I'll note because that was a museum project. We were removing flags from the War of 1812 in Mahan Lobby, and this was December of 2017, and, and we were removing them because after a hundred years of their being hung as they were in, in 1912, you know the the brackets and gravity were just having a, a detrimental effect on these flags, and of course the sun beating down on these for 100 years. So as we were removing these, we found flags behind the flags that had been on our records, but there were only rumors going back to the dark ages of when they didn't keep records very well. And so when we remove these, you know, hundreds of midshipmen and faculty members are coming by. And these were uh, the Korean, uh, the, ban the banners, the uh, their standards, if you will, uh, mm -hmm. from 1871. So it was a, a really important uh, discovery, rediscovery, I should say, and uh, really appreciated that Commander Armstrong had has done so much work on the 1871 expedition. So let's turn then to World War II. Is there is, is there anything that we learn that is new in this offering that we wouldn't have known before, um, before we move on to the – and I, I want to focus really on – Germany and the Soviet Union rather than U.S. amphibious operations. So I thought that was absolutely fascinating that you guys are covering these topics. I'll let Tim talk about this for the most part, but I'll just say as a um, just as a, you know, contributed a very small amount to this as a reader, I knew absolutely nothing about that. That way is I was like I th thought I was at World War II is my specialty, but, you know, no more than the average person there and like didn't know any of that happened at all. So I got that was everything about that was completely new to me. So I think I think for a lot of readers, it probably will be, too. I'll go over to Tim. Yeah, I'm I'm with Jay. You know, we, we talked earlier in the podcast about Normandy. Right. And, and we, we talked about Iwo Jima. We talked about Tarawa. And, and there is a chapter on Tarawa and which came out of, you know, meeting Captain McGrath at McMullen and his paper there and going to him and saying, hey, do you want to publish in our book? And him saying, of course. Um, but we wanted to look at non, you know, we didn't want to do the big one. It's not that, you know, I mean, shoot, new, good new scholarship is coming out on, on Normandy all the time. I can think of three books that have come out in the last two years that are fantastic. Um, that cover aspects of the Normandy campaign that just haven't been done or haven't been done recently or well, or at the, de the you know, kind of the, the depth that, that they should be done. And so the new stuff's coming out and we didn't overtly go into this saying, we absolutely don't want to talk about Iwo Jima. Now, if we'd gotten an amazing Iwo Jima proposal, we would have taken it. No questions asked, but the proposals we got right from, from Jim Greer and from Jeff Schultz and, 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 you know, Colonel Delgadio, like they were great. And so we said, let's, let's do those. Let's, let's take these lesser known examples and give back to, give back to a wider readership. So the proposals we got were largely um, on non-core amphibious operations. And it allowed us then to, to exploit them to, to, to focus on them more. Again, I go back to that text message exchange between Brett and I, right? The, the Soviet landing operation that, I'm, that I was trying to find information on and trying to do the Red Army history when you don't read Russian is, is a little tricky. Uh, but trying to find English language resources on this, 
they just weren't out there. And so that was the impetus to start the book. And then when we started getting chapters on these lesser known operations in the second world war, we were, you know, tickled pink. Jay talked about, you know, I reached out to him and, and no good deed goes unpunished. And he said, you should do this. And I said, no, no, you should do this. Um, you know, Greg Leitke, I reached out to him and said, Hey, I'd love to get a chapter on a German evacuation operation. And he came back with this really fantastic one on the evacuate, the naval evacuations, uh, as the war, you know, as the war went on that preserved Axis combat power significantly, you know, things that I didn't know anything about, but now I put myself in my staff officer role and I go, Oh, I have to get, you know, Americans and our allies off of X location to Y location. And, and, and you know, back to that Molyneux quote about to successfully withdraw. Well, I, I now have an example I can go to and pull up and go, okay, what were the things that they faced? What were, you know, what, what were the, some of the lessons that can be pulled out of that? And I think that that's some of the neat thing to me about these, I'm going to call them minor operations. Um, they certainly weren't minor to the participants, but these lesser known ones where you're going to be able to pull out various lessons. And I think the cool thing from me, from my perspective is I can, you know, I can read these chapters as a historian, you know, I can read these chapters as an editor. I can read these chapters as a field grade officer, as a Marine, I can read them from a variety of different lenses and different angles and get something different out of them. You know, so for your mids that are going to go be surface warfare officers, they might have to go do naval gunfire. You know, those that are looking to go into the to, into the SWIC or the special operations community, they're going to be possibly looking at landings like the one at Mirkola and going, okay, if I have to fight in the Baltic, what do I have to do? Those minor campaigns, those lesser known ones, provide a wealth of unique and interesting details that don't tend to get focused on when you just look at kind of the big four or big five, you know, and, I, and I'll include in there Sicily is, is one of the big ones, but. Okay. Tim, Tim, when you're looking at all of these chapters combined and, and Jay, I'll open up to you as well. Are there commonalities between these operations, common lessons learned that the reader will take away? I'll, I'll throw in it. Well, as a, as a reader and a contributor, I think what, what, Tim was mentioning before is when you when you put out an open call for proposals like this, you get. I mean, my operation wasn't that obscure, but still, most people aren't that familiar with it. But you get people who go, "Oh, I'm I know a lot about this one thing, and there are some really good lessons from this." But other people don't know this. I think it probably seeing a that requ- you know request for papers proposals go out, it inspires that if people go, "I know a lot about this one thing. Hardly anybody else does, and there's something really good we can learn from this." So I, I will say almost every as a just a, a reader there, almost if there if there is a theme, it's there's some lesson in here you probably don't know exactly about this yet, as as vague as that may seem. But every one that I've read in there, I went like, oh, that not just is that an operation I'm not familiar with, but I never really thought about that one thing there. So. That's something I got. For instance, um, B.J. Armstrong's, he has a really good conclusion, I think, for those, you know, a little bit about Korea and uh, you uh, learned that that, well, that that went well. That's something the Marines are proud of. Um, But he points out it didn't actually really meet strategic objectives. So you can have something tactically go off 
just fine and be proud of that one, but it didn't necessarily meet, you know, what the your overall strategic objective. So each each thing I read there, I got some something out of it. I think that I just never would have thought of, and it was a really good example to that thing. So as vague as that may sound, that's the theme I pulled out. Tim. Yeah, I think that that sums it up, right? The the big overarching lesson is something that's known, and that's that this is complex. These aren't easy operations to pull off. From a physical domain standpoint, you're dealing with three different things at once, right? You've got the water meeting the land, meeting the air. And how do I get from A to B? Or how do I get from A back to, you know, from, from ship to shore or shore to ship? And every one of these chapters talks about the complexity of that. And we can put on whatever modern doctrinal term we want to use, right? We've got two chapters in there specifically that talk about multi-domain operations. You know, Walker Mills's chapter talks about expeditionary advanced base operations, which the Marine Corps just released in the last couple of weeks, the manual for, or the, the current uh, reference publication for that. So we've got doctrinal underpinning. We've got concepts that, that exist, but it just keeps coming back to how complex they are, regardless of what framework you try to analyze them in. And, you know, I think that, that for me was a huge takeaway was just how complex these things actually are. Right. Again, coming out of the generation that went to Iraq, right. I, in Afghanistan, I flew from the United States via Europe to Kuwait. I sat in Kuwait for X number of days. I went up into Iraq. It was uncontested similar deployment to Afghanistan. But when I went to Afghanistan in 2009, that was my route. When the combined muse went into Afghanistan in 2001, it was very different. And I think the, the takeaway from me there is that in some ways there's a generation of us now that might be a little logistically spoiled, right? We get on, commercial airliners and we fly to war and we come home on commercial airliners, but that's not always how it is. And that's not always how it has been. And so the complexities of getting from ship to shore or shore to ship are there. And that's the takeaway that I took away from all of this was just how complex and by extension, how in some cases much on a shoestring, a lot of this was that, you know, the, again, the, the, the for want of a nail sort of thing. It, it's a very a razor thin margin on some of these operations as to whether or not they they get pulled off successfully or they don't. Tim Heck, Jay Overton, thanks so much for discussing this new offering from Marine Corps University Press on contested shores, the evolving role of amphibious operations in the history of warfare. Really appreciate you guys coming on to Preble Hall. Claude, thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Claude. Great being here. And for our listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave feedback on whatever platform you're listening to it, and have a great day.
Preble Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.